So this morning, as, you, as you've already heard Henry read, we're going to be in Psalm 40. Now, for those of you who are uh, as old as I am, this psalm is my age. And what's really interesting is I first actually heard this psalm. Uh, I had to play bass at youth group. And one of the things, uh, this was back when Rob Krogh was leading. And he's like, I got this bass line I need you to learn. And it was terribly, woefully awful how I played it. And it's kind of stuck with me ever since. Like, there's just one thing out there that I couldn't get right. And so this morning, we're going to reflect a little bit about what it means to lean into deliverance. Because I think we have some attitudes about it that we might need to shift. So let's pray. God, as we enter your word this morning, might you confront us. Might you take us out of our comfort zone. Put us in a place where we're face to face with you, hearing and seeing what your word has to say. And it's your name we pray. Amen. So I'm willing to bet there are a few times in your life that you've been between a rock and a hard place. When it seems as if the road ahead is foggy at best, you're driving on bald tires with a near-expired inspection sticker. I'm also willing to bet that at different times you've cried out to God to the point of near-exhaustion for everything that life has brought your way. The Psalms are incredible because they capture so many things. As Henry said, they capture emotions. They capture experiences. And so this week, I've had this image in my mind, and that's a hospital lobby. How many of you have been in a hospital lobby in the last six months? For whatever reason, right? I've spent a lot of time in hospital lobbies. Most oftentimes it's for negative reasons, like an injury or awaiting a surgery. And the weight in that space can be near unbearable. Because so many things run through our minds, don't they? There was one particular time when I lived in a faraway land named Nebraska. And uh, if you don't know where Nebraska is, it's dead center of the map. 21 grueling hours from to one coast for the other. You were in the middle of everything. And it was in that space roughly seven years ago where after a mission trip fundraiser uh, and uh, my wife and kids had already made their way up to Nana's house, that I was in the fellowship hall at the church not being able to breathe very well. And it was one of those things where it was weird. And so I called Leah and I said, hey, I think I need to go to the emergency room. Now, luckily, <coughs> one of the elders at the church ran the Bellevue Medical Center. So I got top flight everything. I even got the good juice. Right? So, like, it's to the point where 
I get, I'm making my way to the hospital, and I'm, I'm near the point of having to drag myself through the ER doors. It's like 10 p.m. at night. Not much is happening. I get in there. I'm by myself. And they go, we have to run all these tests. I'm like, go for it. So we get <coughs> all these tests run and all kinds of different things, and they start ruling things out. And then somebody comes in and goes, um, you have blood clots in your lungs, and they are 40-ish percent full. And that's why you can't breathe. So we have some options. We put you on blood thinners, or we can do something else. And I said, what's the something else? They said, we can go in there and put this nuclear stuff in there and burn it all up. And I said, let's do it. Because at that point, staring death in the face, because they were like, this, this could go really south really fast. <coughs> I'm laying on an operating table less than 12 hours later, watching my lungs on the screen that looked like the power went out. And so for two-ish some weeks and a couple of those procedures, they went in there and they burned everything up. And then became the ever-present waiting game. Like, could this ever happen again? And so I kind of live with the half, half dread in the back of my mind all the time of, could this happen again? Right? Rock in a hard place. And waiting for results is not fun. So I have a question. And that's one of the questions that David says. He says, how long? How long do we need to wait how long do we need to wait for resolution? How long do we need to wait for deliverance? And I think the key this morning, as we reflect on what we've heard, is how to take something about how to wait. And if you're like me, you have a hard time waiting for things. Now your mind might jump to orange cone traffic season and all the pen dot things waiting in traffic and all that fun stuff. But I'm talking about something more long-term than that. I'm talking about like what God is doing here on earth. Like this plan that's been unfolding for so many years that we're just this much a part of. We get to know some things about the past and we know some things about the future. But if we take a look at the world around us, it's not all sunshine and unicorns outside, is it? I was keenly made aware of this on the 4th of July. So as many of you know, Sheets decided in their infinite marketing and business wisdom to offer gas at 177 and 6 repetend. And what it caused <clears throat> was nothing short of pandemonium. At every sheets that I drove past that day, there was lines for forever. It did not seem as if anybody was guiding that traffic. So if I were a marketing person, 
And I would have said, hey, you know what? We're going to bless America by drastically reducing auto, uh, gasoline. I would also say, you know what? We're also going to put somebody out there with a yellow vest on to help guide people and help people learn how to act. Because when I finally broke down and said, hey, I can't pass this up, you know, gas is expensive. I decided to go to the one across from uh, the new Aldi in Monroeville. And getting in there was a trick. And I won't tell you how I got in there, because you might judge me. <laughs> but I drove through that at the hotel parking lot at the very top, and I snuck in and I made a left, using my superior knowledge of roads. But once I got in, I couldn't get out. It was one of those things where everyone was so concerned with getting to the pump or getting ahead of somebody else, or there was even a point where we heard arguments. People were fighting, yelling at each other. And like on a day where we're supposed to be proud about a lot of things, I wasn't proud about very much. It kind of had one of those post-apocalyptic feels where it was like, you know what? If this is what it's like when there's something that's a blessing, what happens when there's a problem? What's going to happen if we ever have shortages like they did in the 70s and things? So what was supposed to be a blessing felt like a curse. And I wondered, like, how long? How long until things are made right? But it was like in that moment I asked God, I'm like, why are you taking so long to return? It is super easy to get caught up in our daily lives that we don't look to the right or to the left. Especially as we try to address our own needs. And it's super easy to be focused on yourself when it comes to this idea of deliverance. And there's a place for that. And we'll definitely spend time in that headspace. But I want to set this up right now. I want to put this out there. That our personal story of deliverance is only a small part, like I said before, of the massive plan that God has been unfolding before our eyes. And the book of Psalms is one of the biggest pieces of real estate in the Bible, bar none. The book has 150 chapters. Now, you may have heard this before, but I'm going to remind you. The book of Psalms, although recognized by us as one book, thanks to good old King James, uh, it's actually made up of five books. And in, in the Hebrew scriptures, they're actually sewn together. It's really neat. <clears throat> and each of these five books have deeper connections. They're connected to the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And each one of these psalm books also has a connection to, or at least thematic stuff involved with, a particular Jewish festival. 
So book one, that's where we are today. We're actually at the very end of it. Book one is chapters 1 through 41. And its parallel is Genesis. It, it connects most closely with Passover themes and deals largely with the trials and experiences of man. Book number two, chapters 42 through 72, uh, most closely parallels Exodus and the Feast of Pentecost and deals largely with the Israelite community at large. Book number three, chapters 73 through 89, most closely parallels Leviticus, the Feast of Trumpets, and largely deals with persecution of the Israelite community. Book number four, chapters 90 through 106, most closely parallels numbers. You see how intentional this all is? It also has uh, themes that are concurrent with the Feast of Tabernacles and largely deals with Israel's interactions with other nations. And finally, book number five, chapters 107 through 150, most parallels Deuteronomy. The Feast of Purim and Israel's interaction with the kingdom of God on earth. So, if you up to this point had thought that the book of Psalms was just a scattered collection of prayers that we weren't quite sure how they were organized. Or that it was something that was for then. Look at those connections. Because connections to the past also have connections to the future. If you remember a couple sermons ago, I had this picture on the board, uh, screen. And it was like all these different colors. And it was all the interconnected pieces in scripture. Psalms is one of those places that holds a lot of those colors. But we're at, the ne we're at the near end of book one. So in Psalm 40, and this psalm has a lot of reflection and movement in it. There are some pretty high highs and some seriously low lows. It opens up in verses one through three. If you don't have your scriptures open, go ahead and open them up. Psalm 40. Verse 1 through 3, and we most famously hear those lines, like I mentioned before, adapted into that U2 song. And earlier you heard it read in its entirety, but I want to point out a few things as we move through about the back and forth nature of this psalm. Because if you read it in its entirety, you notice that David ping-pongs a lot. And it begins with a very clear declaration of deliverance with phrases like, I waited for the Lord. He heard me. He lifted me up. He set my feet and established my steps. He put a new song in my mouth. And in verse 4 to 5, he goes on further to expound on what people would, would see and fear. It goes from personal waiting to a communal witness when he says things like this. Blessed is the man. And your thoughts towards us. So far this is a pretty confident beginning. Waiting for the Lord, trusting the Lord. And it even grows deeper and wider with the reflection on God's goodness and mercy in verses 6 through 8. And I want to draw your attention to something super interesting. This is one of those things where I went, ooh. David, in verses 6 through 8 goes on to name four different types of offerings and then contrasts them in pairs of twos with something that's greater. 
So the first one, he talks about sacrifice. And how you should understand that is that's an offering that involves blood. Then he mentions the offering, which is, is largely meant to be things that are without blood. And so he flips all that on his figurative head when he says that God has given him an open ear. Things that he thinks he needs to earn, he's just given. All of these things, to, uh, these point to a sense of obedience. And what's remarkable is David understands that what God truly delights in is an obedient child who is after his own heart. So much so to listen intently. Similarly, he starts in with another pairing. Third, this burnt offering. It's an offering of total consecration. It's an act of total committal. When you burn something, you burn it. That's why I was checking on your fingers. See if you guys are all right. And fourth, there was the sin offering. Or offerings that atone for sin or make payment for them. And these are the most costly of all. But what's clear here is that what God is after and what David responds to is a God of mercy and compassion who by his own holiness, we come to see how truly far away we are. How distance plays a part in the space that sin puts between us and God and how God's righteousness can cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in verses 9 through 12, we can see that not only did David wait on the Lord, he trusted on the Lord, and he depended on the Lord, but then he also brags on the Lord. He didn't want to keep the good news shut up in his bones. He had to tell someone. He had to tell everybody. He had to be about letting people know what God had done for him. And interestingly enough, in the very same verse, when David goes from shouting it in the rooftops, he goes back to the pit. Here's the ping pong. And in verse 12, at the end of it, it says, my heart fails me. It's like he went up on a roller coaster and now is back down at the bottom. And in one verse this time, we go from an extreme high to an extreme low. And I know some of you in this room have been in that place before. And it's not just me. And it's almost like before a sentence can come out of your mouth, everything goes from gold to dust. And if we were to plot this out on a graph... It would look like something interesting if we were to look at this psalm. Anybody recognize that just by looking at my, what I did? It's a heartbeat. In a heartbeat, it goes where? Up. And then where? Down. 
But isn't that the rhythm of life, though? Up and down. Up and down. And so the same God who sustains the heartbeat, gives air to the lungs, and everything else is able to take us from death to life. And everything we have is because of his mercy. So in the remaining verses, we see a similar refrain uh, that we saw in the beginning, except this time, it's more of a real-time cry instead of him reflecting on mercy that he's already been given. And I'm particularly struck by the wording in verse 13, and he says this, Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. That's a very bold request. He's not only asking God to deliver him, but he's saying, be joyful about it. Do it out of your very good pleasure because of who you are. Appealing to God's wonderfulness and his justness. And he can be so bold, why? Because he was just bold before. He was just delivered before. So he understands that God has a pretty good track record. What if we were to be so bold? What if instead of praying the way we pray sometimes, with a like, maybe, like, please, or, you know, if, it just, please, what if we came in with an attitude of, if it is pleasing to you, make it happen? What if we took this attitude? Be pleased, O Lord, to forgive me. Be pleased, O Lord, to correct me. Be pleased, O Lord, to provide for me. Be pleased, O Lord, to heal me. Be pleased, O Lord, to guide me. And be pleased, O Lord, to bless me. What if we were that bold? Perhaps we don't often see so many radical deliverances anymore because we aren't being bold enough with our requests. Sometimes I wonder about this. I wonder perhaps if we don't see such radical change and deliverance in our lives and others' lives because we have so well insulated ourselves from needing it. We aren't in touch with how deep and how far our sin goes, we aren't able to see that because we've been able to justify them. We don't see the need for correction because we have rationalized the, the sin that's in our lives. We don't see the need for provision because we can do it on our own. Or the plastic does. He who has ears, let him hear. We do not recognize the need for healing in our minds, bodies, and souls because we are so disconnected from ourselves to begin with. We don't need to be guided because we've replaced G-O-D with G-P-S. We don't have the need for blessing because at every turn 
we are gratifying our own desires. So the question on the table is this. When was the last time that we looked in the mirror and we actually saw ourselves for who we really are? Not who we want other people to see or who we idealize ourselves to be, but literally who we really are. Because so many of us operate under the impression of our idealized self, which means we are not connected to who we really are. And this is like being on autopilot in your own skin. Now, it's one thing to be on autopilot when you're driving and you're, you're going someplace and you realize, I don't even remember the last 20 miles. But what about doing that with the rest of your life? When was the last time that you were here? Not like sitting in your seat, but like really here. Not distracted, worried about the rest of the day or, or anything like that, but actually present in the skin that you carry around. As conflicted as we may think David is being, I appreciate it because I think that David was present. It is only when you are truly present, when you can feel and describe what it means to be disconnected. It's like saying a fish in a bowl does not know that it is wet. When a millimeter of separation feels like miles. That's what understanding what deliverance means. It's knowing how far you were gone and what it took to bring you back. And not only just one time, but continually. You need to know the depth to which you have been rescued, restored, redeemed, and reconciled. And here's the big secret. If you wonder what it means to wait well, you simply have to be present. So often we want to drift away in times of waiting. But as we see this throughout David's Psalm 40, that David was present in the waiting, we tend to think that God is elsewhere in times of waiting. But the reality is, God hasn't gone anywhere. We did. So deliverance, I want you to understand this, is not just an ejector seat from the things that you don't like. Or an ejector seat from your troubles, trials, or issues. Deliverance is the entire process. Picture this, from the garden in Genesis to the city in Revelation is the unfolding story of deliverance. It's about the whole thing. It's not about the day that you got saved or it's not about the day where 
you turned around. It's about every day. Even the days when you are far off. It's the totality of all of our lives. And yet our lives make up this much. And if you look closely, if you stare into the mirror for any period of time, you will realize there is an ache within you. And you carry it around. And it pops up at certain times like at sheets. When I sit there and I go, like how long? And this is what David is testifying to. And here's how he closes. Be pleased, O Lord, to be mindful of us when we are not mindful of you. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. That's being present. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. And as for us, we are poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of us. You are our help and our deliverer. Do not delay. Let's pray. Be pleased, O Lord, to forgive us. Be pleased, O Lord, to correct us. Be pleased, O Lord, to provide for us. Be pleased, O Lord, to heal us. Be pleased, O Lord, to guide us. Be pleased, O Lord, to bless us. And be pleased, O Lord, to help us be present. Amen.